Good afternoon. This is WVEW LP Brattleboro, 107.7 FM, your community radio station. Also streaming live online at WVEW.org. You're listening to Indigo Radio, deepening understanding, making connections, on the air every Sunday at noon. We're a group of educators seeking to learn through engaging with others in our community and throughout the world. You can also find us on Facebook at Indigo Radio and on Instagram, SoundCloud, and iTunes. The views and opinions expressed on this program are those of the hosts and guests, not the radio station. I'm Corey Sorensen, and I'm here in the studio with Anna and Hector. Hi, this is Anna Milani. I'm a graduate student at UMass Amherst and also a local educator. And today we're going to be talking about U.S. intervention and imperial interest in Latin America, specifically in the context of Venezuela and Honduras, and discuss solidarity and resistance by the people on the ground. We have in the studio with us Hector Figuerella, Venezuelan-American activist. We're happy to have you in the studio with us, also a friend of Indigo Radio. And we will have on the phone with us uh, Assis Castellanos, who is a Honduran sociologist and activist. Also with him is Beth Giglia, an anthropologist and activist working on Honduras since 2009. She co-directed a film about health care in northern uh, Honduras entitled Revolutionary Medicine. So we're just coming off the July 4th weekend with its huge display of military force in D.C., uh, military hardware rolling down the streets and flyovers by military aircrafts. This goes at the same time that there's outrage and protest around not only the deplorable conditions, but also the very existence of detention centers, concentration camps that are warehousing migrants on the border that are fleeing poverty and violence within their countries. This poverty and violence directly connected to the long history of U.S. interference with these countries. We're going to talk about some of that today. This country is a history, or has a history of imperialism, and it's important to point out that this did not start with Trump. The coup in Honduras, which we will talk about back in 2009, was backed by the Obama administration. And I think we think it's important that, you know, when we focus too much on Trump, we can forget that every administration has been an imperialistic force. So we're going to start with a song. And the song is by Loki. He's a British Iraqi rapper and activist. And it is called Obama Nation. And we will be back with our guests. This track is not an attack upon the American people. It's an attack upon the system within which they live. Since 1945, the United States has attempted to overthrow more than 50 foreign governments. In the process, the US has caused the end of life for several million people and condemned many millions more to a life of agony and despair. The strength of your dreaming prevents you from reason. The American dream only makes sense if you're sleeping. It's just a cruel fantasy. Their politics took my voice away But their music gave it back to me The land where they're lumping are consumed by consumption Killing themselves to shovel down food in abundance I guess a rapper from Britain is a rare voice America is capitalism on steroids Natives kept in casinos and reservations This place slaves never given reparations Take everything from Native Americans And wonder why I call it the racist experiment Afraid of your melanin The same as it's ever been That ain't gonna change with the race of the president I see him Imperialism under your skin tone You could call it Christopher Columbus Syndrome Is it a false nation or an abomination? Is it a false nation or an abomination? Is it a false nation or an abomination? 
world's entertainer, the world's devastator From Venezuela to Mesopotamia Your cameras lie cause they have to hide the savage crimes committed on leaders That happen to try and nationalise eating competitions While the world's been starving Beat up communism with the help of Bin Laden Where would your war of terror be without that man? Every day you create more Nadal Hassan's killer man from the military You're a weirdo but killer walk from the Middle East You're a hero, your country is causing screams that never reach your ear holes America inflicted a million ground zeros Follow the dollar and swallow your humanity Soldiers committing savagery you never even have to see Those mad at me, writing emails angrily I'm not anti-America, America is anti-me Relations. What matters more is the policies, I lost my patience Stop debating, bringing race into the conversation Occupation and cooperation equals profit making It's over, people wake up from the dream now Nobel Peace Prize, Jay-Z on speed That was the substance within, not the colour of your skin Are you the puppeteer or the puppet on the string? So many believed it was instantly gonna change There was still Dennis Russ, Brzezinski and Robert Gates What happened to Chaz Freeman? What happened to Tristan Anderson? It's a machine that keeps that man breathing I have the heart to say what all these other rappers aren't Words like Iraq, Palestine, Afghanistan The war's on and you morons were all wrong I call Obama a bomber cause those are your bomb, your bomb, your bomb And we're back That was Obama Nation uh, by Low Key We're going to begin the show first with a quote by Eduardo Galeano from his 1973 book, Open Veins of Latin America, Five Centuries of the Pillage of a Continent. And um, Assis and Hector, will have you each respond to this quote after I'm done reading it. Uh, so he writes, Latin America is the region of open veins. Everything from the discovery until our times has always been transmuted into European or later United States capital and as such has accumulated in distant centers of power. Everything, the soil, its fruits, and its mineral-rich depths, the people and their capacity to work and to consume, natural resources and human resources. Production methods and class structure have been successfully determined from outside for each area by meshing it into the universal gearbox of capitalism. To each area has been assigned a function always for the benefit of the foreign metropolis of the moment, and the endless chain of dependency has been endlessly extended. The chain has many more than two links. In Latin America, it also includes the oppression of small countries by their larger neighbors, and within each country's frontiers, the exploitation by big cities and ports of their internal sources of food and labor. The history of Latin America's underdevelopment is, as someone has said, an integral part of the history of world capitalism's development. And Eduardo Galeano finishes by saying, Our defeat was always implicit in the victory of others. Our wealth has always generated our poverty by nourishing the prosperity of others, the empires and their native overseers. In the colonial and neo-colonial alchemy, gold changes into scrap metal and food into poison. Hector and Assis, 
with uh, people in Honduras and in Venezuela living in poverty, in statistics that we found, correct me if I'm wrong, is that 70% of Hondurans and over 80% of Venezuela people are living in poverty. How would you respond to this quote? Uh, first of all, thank you for having me. It's, it's a great honor to be here with you guys again. Yeah, to respond to respond to that quote, it's very, it's very visceral. Visceral the way he Galeano describes uh, the relationship between the empires that have looted Latin America. So, in relation to Venezuela, Venezuela has been exploited, you know, for for many many decades, for centuries, beginning with the Spaniards. And I, I think what we're seeing in Venezuela right now is is two camps. I mean, we're, let's let's call it the Chavista camp. Uh, the revolutionary socialist camp uh, that is being led by the Maduro government against the, the opposition, an opposition that, that has its roots in, in the oligarchs, an, an opposition that has benefited tremendously because of the oil wealth. Uh, I would say probably for, since oil has been exp- exploited in Venezuela, so I would say for like 60 to 70 years plus, the oligarchs control uh, the state oil company, they control the government, and these families became probably the richest in Latin America. They, they would joke in the 80s, 70s and 80s, that they, they were so rich they were buying up Miami. Uh, they would just you know, t- take over um, and, just, and just purchase. That's how rich they were. These were fortunes that were uh, ill-conceived uh, through just corruption and uh, mismanagement of, of, of oil funds that should be and should have gone to the general population. Uh, so what we, what we see in Venezuela right now is an opposition, a class division, class warfare uh, at the core. And what distinguishes the Venezuela, the Venezuela situation is that in, in, in this case, it's one of the few cases in Latin America where you have a socialist government whose main purpose is to use the revenues uh, obtained by, by oil sales to go to the population. Uh, to benefit the population, and we saw we saw this through the first 15 years of the Chavez administration, the 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 influx of funds that went towards building houses and medical centers, uh, universities, uh, reducing reducing hunger across the board. Uh, it's just just the list goes on and on when you when your main goal is to take care of the population as a whole. Um, so we have we so we have an opposition that's that's trying to it's been trying very hard to undo this. Venezuela is, is no is no stranger to this as far as you know trying to trying to to survive uh, or trying to push a, a socialist revolution without without having a confrontation with an empire uh, with, a, with an economic empire like, such as the United States so naturally there were you know there, there was going to be a, col- uh, a collision of ideas and interests and Assis, uh, what would this mean to in regards to your country both historical and present day I think that Galeano's quote it speaks for by itself, and of course, if we think on uh, the Honduras case as a part of uh, like region, Honduras is in the region that historically has been a feuded region uh, amongst uh, various imperial powers. Uh, you name it: uh, the English, the Spanish, and somehow also the, the French. So Honduras has been part of that region. And since the very beginning of that, uh, the so-called discovery, Honduras as other countries in Latin America has been seen as land of, of territory of, for, uh, for the purpose of, of profit and as a part of the re, uh, reconfiguration of 
capital and accumulation. So land, uh, in this in this sense, has been in the central of, of the struggle uh, between their, uh, imperialism in in the last century, the U.S. the U.S. military, political, and economic intervention in Latin America. Of course, in the case of Honduras, uh, we don't have uh, oil as uh, Venezuela does. And uh, so for Honduras in 2009, there was a switch in our, like, uh, shift on, the, on certain politicians like uh, Mel Zelaya. Mel Zelaya is part of the, I would say, progressive liberal uh, historic in Honduras. And uh, Mel Zelaya in 2000, actually the, his first uh, year of, of presidency was pretty much kind of the same uh, continuation of neoliberal uh, government, but there was a shift in the, the second year, third year, and uh, he was part of this, what I call, uprising for resistance movements in, in Latin America. And that was uh, like a, a real threat to uh, U.S. Uh, economic and political interests uh, in Latin America, because for various reasons, but also because Honduras historically uh, has been used this idea of like a, a kind of sort of uh, laboratory laboratory test just not not only for uh, military uh, intervention but also for uh, economic and political exercise of power for for, uh, for the name of profit uh, uh, resource extraction so of course Honduras in the last century has been profoundly changed by the US our intervention in Honduras. So yeah, I I see that quote, Galeano's quote, very much related to what is uh, Honduras history. And I also see that Honduras is not like a unique case; it's part of the larger region. Mm-hmm. So I think that is also very important to see when we uh, try to understand and also uh, you know engage in solidarity movements in, in Latin America. That it seems really important to see countries like Honduras as a part of the our region, uh, as a geopolitical part of uh, U.S. international policy in Latin America. Uh, so the coup d'etat in 2009, of course, uh, has profound impact on Honduras, on Honduras on people's lives, but also was a coup against economic and political alternatives in, in, in Latin America. So I think it's, it's very important to keep that in mind. Assis, I'm going to actually, we just wanted, just on that note, wanted you to just give us an update about what is happening currently on the ground, because June 28th marked the 10th anniversary of the 2009 coup in Honduras, ousting uh, President Manuel Zelaya by the business and military political elite. And of course, this was supported by the Obama administration. And Zelaya, I just read recently, he has, he has said that the coup turned Honduras into what he called a living hell. And I've also heard you refer to the 2000 coup as uh, a breaking point that has been followed by a never-ending coup d'etat. Could you just give us a quick review of what is happening on the ground currently in Honduras? Yeah, I think that it's very important to see the 2000 uh, military uh, coup in Honduras as a, like this idea of a never-ending coup because the 2009 uh, breaking point, this idea of what it started in Honduras in the ni- 1982, which is an, uh, known as uh, the democratic period uh, of uh, U- uh, Honduras history. And uh, 
what Celaya and uh, others were trying to to do in 2009 was to change and uh, expand democratically the very constitution, uh, the Honduran constitution, to, uh, 1982. So the, 2000, the 2009 coup d'état is also is a breaking point in the in this idea of the elite consensus. There was no way to to conceive uh, a referendum in, in in Honduras because of the economic and political uh, context. Uh, to uh, to have a referendum will mean will mean to to really push a democratic agenda in in Honduras, and that's exactly what uh, the elite, uh, the Honduran elite, has historically opposed. Uh, so that the 2009 just accelerated the processes of neoliberal processes of privatization uh, and land appropriation. So the 2009 and the last 10 years as best. Diggy is going to uh, try to uh, explain a little bit more. There are like a profound, profound very profound changes in, economically in the Honduran landscape uh, and people's life. Assis, we're gonna, I think we're going to take a break real quick and then we'll come back with Beth and go a little bit further into detail about what these neoliberal practices are. So before that, we're going to listen to a song called Hoes Pa Fuera Que Vas Letra is... A ra- was a rally cry after the 2017 electoral fraud in Honduras. And Hector, or Anna, what's the, the HO stands for? It's J. Juan o- Orlando Hernandez. Okay. Ya me voy de mi país. Aquí no puedo vivir, porque si me quedo aquí, del hambre voy a morir. Oh, oh, es pa' afuera que vas, oh, es pa' afuera que vas, oh, es pa' afuera que vas, oh, es pa' afuera que vas. Que el cambio va a mejorar, ha sido para empeorar. Oh, oh, es pa' afuera que va, oh, es pa' afuera que va, oh, es pa' afuera que va, oh, es pa' afuera que va. ¡Viva la alianza! Dan pastillas y harina, oh, 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 es pa' afuera que vas, oh, es pa' afuera que vas, oh, es pa' afuera que vas, oh, es pa' afuera que vas. Cada uno que grita le dan 50 lempiras. Oh, oh, oh. 
Indigo Radio, you're listening to on the air every Sunday at noon. And this is Anna. I'm here with Corey and Hector Figuerella, a Venezuelan American activist. We have on the phone Assis and Beth in calling in from DC. We left off with Assis talking about uh, the current situation in Honduras and talking about the what's happening is a, a lot of strikes around the push for continued privatization which has cuts to schools, education, and uh, health care. And we're going to have Beth talk a little bit about that soon. But first, we want to turn to Hector and talk about what, how that relates to what's going on in Venezuela, how uh, both the government or ruling class in, in the country and in the U.S. use different excuses to intervene into a country. Oftentimes, these are you know, under the guise of humanitarian aid, but there also is this link for also to push to privatize. So if you could touch on that and, and what that looks like in Venezuela. Yeah, absolutely. So, so looking, looking at Venezuela as far as um, the current situation, uh, specifically the United States, uh, the Trump administration's push for intervention, they're, they're one, of, one of their strategies is it's a, it's a multi it's a multi prong strategy, but one of them includes the use of the so-called humanitarian aid as an excuse for intervention. Uh, we saw this clearly during the, the events that occur at the, between the Venezuela and Colombian, Colombian border, the, the city of Cucuta, where uh, on February 23rd, the Venezuelan opposition hired thugs to push uh, so-called humanitarian trucks by force through, through the Venezuelan border. And I mean, they, they called it a Trojan horse. Obviously, I mean, they, there was you know, the trucks were born were burned down by the by the opposition. And upon inspection, you know, you could see there was there was no food in the trucks. It was more actually more materials for uh, to to supply um, you know for, for more for more protests like wires and masks, gas masks, uh, things like that. And so there's you know the United States government is no stranger to to using any 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 strategies necessary to topple governments we saw it we saw it recently as, you know as early as uh, during the during the obama administration with with, um, with libya where where the pretext was humanitarian aid and they needed to bomb in libya in order to save it so it's, it's, it's quite worrisome that you know they're trying they're trying very hard to do the same thing in venezuela it's, uh, it's just unfortunately they they have not been successful but that, this has not stopped them from trying from politici from politicizing uh, the the situation, but this also brings me up to the point of sanctions. We could talk about sanctions more yeah. in more detail now or maybe later, but also like it is known that sanctions always affect the most vulnerable members of any population. I don't think there's any 
record of sanctions toppling any government. So the the idea of using collective punishment, causing mass you know mass suf- suffering to an entire population, obviously it's illegal under international law. But the, the idea that you squeeze the population to a point where they can no longer take it, so they therefore change the government for you, is, is very sick. Uh, it's very cynical, uh, and that's that's what we're seeing in Venezuela right now. Yeah, I think that's actually a really important point. Is thinking about how economic sanctions are another maybe manifestation you could say of imperialism or another tactic to use as you say as a as a collective punishment or yeah go ahead i just wanted to say one more thing about sanctions is is when you when you speak to most people and you talk about sanctions most people i'm talking about most voters in the u.s uh most citizens they they really don't make the connection that sanctions actually kill innocent people uh, a report just came out that since 2017 uh, the Trump the Trump sanctions have killed at least at least 40,000 Venezuelans that have died in res- as a result of, of the sanctions imposed by the Trump administration so there is a human cost a high human cost it's great suffering right now in Venezuela people having a hard time affording food they cannot find medicine simple you know antibiotics or HIV medication cancer treatment you name it whatever the condition is simple dialysis you cannot find it, or it's too expensive. And, and that, that leads to the economic war as far as, like, you know, manufacturing the hyperinflation that Venezuela is doing. Venezuela is under attack. It's, it's, it's economic warfare. Mm-hmm. Whether you like it or not, Venezuela is at war. It's under attack. And that's what we're seeing. And that's an important distinction to make when the narrative here is that, that people are dying within Venezuela because of practices in Venezuela when the sanctions itself are an attack. They're an economic attack. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Just one more thing on, on the sanction is that it's important to recognize that within the United States Congress both parties, whether, whether the Republican or Democrat, this, this great consensus and agreement among both parties, the sanctions are a go-to weapon of choice. So there's, there's very little support against sanctions within our, you know, among our elected officials and there's a lot of work to be done there and I don't know if maybe they just they're not educated along the lines of the human cost. But I think um, that's a conversation that needs to be brought up more and more. Yeah, great. Thank you for that. Uh, We want to bring Beth into this conversation and actually just what you said about the human cost. And we know that you've done a lot around healthcare. And Corey, you're going to read a quote from an article that Beth, you authored. Yeah, sure. So uh, Beth, I read an article that uh, you'd written portside that was talking about striking teachers and doctors in Honduras since April of this year. And um, kind of going back to that, the ideology behind what's happening, here's what you wrote. That the state of emergency is just an ideological justification that confuses the public. Because, of course, there's an emergency in the school system, but it wasn't caused by the teachers. It wasn't caused by the population. It's a crisis that was prompted by the government. At no point does the Constitution talk about a crisis as something that can be caused by an adjustment in the budget or because the government itself is fabricating the crisis. I was wondering if you could talk about what is meant in the dominant narrative about what the state of emergency is in education and uh, what do you mean by the government fabricating the crisis? Sure. Um, First of all, thank you for having me. Uh, It's a pleasure to be here. that quote that you just read, uh, it's actually a quote from uh, Byron Pineda, who is a teacher and an organizer with the Nas- National Teachers Movement um, in San Pedro Sula. Um, and so he said that in an interview that I did with him. And what he's referring to is 
for the past month or so, teachers and doctors have been taking to the streets in Honduras. There's been an ongoing national strike um, of massive proportions, uh, really powerful protests um, that have shut down large parts of the country. Um, and teachers and doctors are responding to what is sort of the most recent step in an ongoing process of privatization um, that has been taking place since the coup. So the coup in Honduras was very much an economic coup. It was about opening up markets in Honduras for private interests, for private interests in particular. And many things happened after the coup. The country was opened up again for new mining concessions. Um, the labor code was reformed. Uh, Hondurans lost a lot of labor rights that they had won over many years of struggle. Um, but Honduras also became a place where these sort of more subtle, um, more drawn-out processes of privatization um, were being implemented. So we've seen that uh, in the case of healthcare and education, most recently with these new restructuring laws, um, which ha is what has sparked the, the most recent wave of, of protests. And basically what Byron is talking about in that quote is that this process, the restructuring of the health and um, education sectors has been premised on this idea that both of those sectors are in a state of emergency. Um, and so the government, the executive branch has to take um, immediate action to resolve this. But these you know, so-called emergencies have been provoked by these very policies themselves. So since the coup, there's been uh, cuts in funding in healthcare and education, um, at least in terms of the percentage of the national budget that has been allocated to those sectors. Um, people talk about really dire conditions in the hospitals um, in Honduras these days. There's a lack of medicine. You know, families often have to buy their own supplies for the treatment that their family members are receiving. And the post-coup um, government of Porfirio Lolo um, was actually the first to declare a state of emergency in this way. And so they used a kind of executive order that's called a PCM. Um, and this was first put into effect in 2011. Um, for education, and what it did was it made um, or it made it illegal for uh, teachers to organize um, themselves in the way that they had been organizing for improvements in education. I think it's important to say that this came after a September uh, 2010 trip when President Lobo uh, traveled to New Orleans, um, and there he met with the mayor of New Orleans and the president of Tulane University, and they reached an agreement, um, some sort of advising agreement. Um, that they would work on the restructuring of education based sort of on this New Orleans um, model um, of how that was done, done post-Hurricane uh, Katrina. And we don't know much of the details about this agreement, um, but we do know that it was after this, this that the state of emergency um, was declared in Honduras to strip teachers of their rights. And what Byron was referring to is that in the Constitution, you know, this kind of state of emergency is allowed in instances of natural disasters, things such as hurricanes, but not, there's sort of like, this cycle of logic in which the you know the current administration is using is systematically defunding and weakening these sectors in order to declare a state of emergency and criminalize protest. So something else that has happened, um, there's been decentralization policies in Honduras um, that basically transfer the responsibility of providing healthcare and education to municipal governments who don't have the capacity um, and the resources to do this. So they're able to use a new uh, sort of investment figure called the Public-Private Partnership to basically give contracts to private institutions and NGOs to run schools and to run hospitals. And so this is another form of privatization that's, again, really similar kind of to the charter school uh, model um, that took over in New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina and also like throughout the United States. So new PCMs were declared, again, declaring a state of emergency recently. And restructuring laws were passed um, that basically 
outsource governance to a private committee, a special committee for restructuring of both the healthcare and education sectors. And these private committees essentially get to restructure the budgets for both sectors and they get to change the way that teachers are contracted. So of course, teachers and doctors across the country um, know that this will lead to the casualization of their labor, more precarious contracts, um, fewer benefits, and et cetera. So I think this is one example of outsourcing of governance, which of course is a huge threat to democracy. Um, that's been happening since the coup. And another good example of this, and I can talk about it more if, if you're interested, is sort of the model city plan in Honduras, which also um, was something that passed after the military coup. And it's a much more extreme example of this, in which the Honduran government basically gives private investors the ability to govern certain parts of Honduran territory. And I think it's really important to note here that um, the new structure that was created for the model cities is really governed by a commission that's called the, Com the Committee for the Adoption of Best Practices, which is dominated by U.S. citizens. It's a 21-person commission. It's dominated by U.S. citizens. And most of these people come directly from the Reagan administration. So these are people who played a firsthand role in forming the counterinsurgency and getting congressional support for the counterinsurgency strategies during the Reagan administration. And so now they're, they're sort of popping up in these new privatization schemes and given sort of the power to um, have direct governing influence over parts of Honduran territory. So it's very much a continuation of the Cold War um, under a new rubric, under a new model. And with a name like best practices, uh, it makes me want to ask the question, best practices for who or for what? Uh, we see neoliberal neoliberalism serves capital and marked by um, breaking up union efforts and uh, privatization of goods, slashing social programs, tax cuts for wealthy. So best practices for who or what? Yeah, absolutely. And if you look at who's at the commission, it's sort of a team of, you know, free market fundamentalists. Um, so they're very much talking about creating the most favorable investment climate possible for foreign investors. Thank you, Beth, for sharing all that. So we're going to go to another song break. The, this next song is uh, by Ali Primera. Uh, it's called Yankee Go Home. And this is, Ali was known as the... He's, he's a Venezuelan folk singer. Okay. Uh, we, can, we can compare him to you know, Bob Dylan. The Bob Dylan of Venezuela, if, <laughs> if, if, if you may. Thank you, Hector. Here's Ali Primera. El Yankee teme que tú te levantes, América Latina obrera, no sé por qué no lo haces. El Yankee teme a la revolución, el Yankee teme grito, Yankee Gohón, Yankee Gohón. Viene remontando el Amazonas, el grito rebelde del Carioca, y viene a unirse con su hermano, el obrero venezolano. América Latina obrera, América Latina obrera, América Latina. Levanten tus manos la bandera de la revolución, América Latina obrera, y grite con fuerza, Yenquigo.
¡Gringo! ¡Gringo! ¡Gojón! Los obreros de América Latina te dicen ¡Gringo! ¡Gojón! ¡Yankee! ¡Gojón! Levanten tus manos la bandera de la revolución América Latina obrera y grita con fuerza Yankee Gohon, Yankee Gohon, Yankee Gohon. And we're back. Uh, that was Ali Primera, the Bob Dylan of Venezuela, you may say. And uh, we're going to come back and try to make some more connections between um, all of our guests on the show t today and Venezuela and Honduras. And I'm going to start by reading a tweet that... Uh, President Nicolas Maduro of Venezuela tweeted on the 10-year anniversary of the coup in the coup in Honduras, correct? Right. Yeah. So he wrote, 10 years ago, it began with the coup d'etat of President Manuel Zelaya, the aggression of the gringo empire against the progressive governments of the continent. The blows and the aggressions will not be able to bend the will of fight for the, of the progressive movements of the great homeland. Maybe you could start with Assis, but this is a question to all of you. Historically and currently, what is the collaboration between some countries that makes you hopeful? Well, I think that uh, one, of, one of the uh, 21st century collaboration among, uh, between, uh, among countries and, uh, and particularly uh, social movements in Latin America was somehow uh, organized by the uh, ALBA. And this is a very important alliance. Assis, can you, uh, just real quick, can you explain to people what ALBA is? Oh, yes. Uh, well, would you mind, Hector, uh, just jumping in and explaining a little bit what ALBA is? Yeah, it was, it was an initiative. It was, it was a, I guess, Hugo Chavez's um, idea to follow in Simón Bolívar, the great liberator of South America, I um, dream of unifying the unifying Latin America as one one great nation, unify, uh, working for one purpose. So he called it the Great Colombia, Bolivar. There, so Chavez, Chavez, being an admirer of Bolivar, felt like that this in modern times there was there was a need to unify Latin America to come together, and you know working working together in order to have a more balance of power with you know being so close to the great empire. Uh, mighty empire of the United States. So ALBA, ALBA is the Bolivarian Al Alliance for the people of the Americas. Left-leaning governments uh, are part of it. Um, so we have Bolivia, uh, Nicaragua, Cuba. And formerly in Brazil was part of it, but uh, no longer because of Brazil has gone, you know, right-wing fascist now. So it was, it was just an attempt to bring Latin America closer, unify, and to have a more unified response to the to, to the aggression of, of the U.S. empire. Yes, uh, thank you, Hector. So ALBA, if we, uh, ALBA is a kind of uh, this idea that, for example, in the 20th century, the idea of alliance among uh, countries and, and social movements. And so ALBA is this new collective uh, space that uh, was uh, at the beginning, you know, uh, organized by uh, Hugo Chavez. It also uh, was against in the six, back, back in the 60s, after the uh, Cuban Revolution, 
Uh, let's not forget that uh, the U.S. policy uh, through Latin America organized the Alliance for uh, for Progress, and this was a very uh, right-wing international platform to uh, counter uh, liberation movements in Latin America. Uh, so this Alba was also its uh, alternative to that uh, kind of alliances. And also, uh, let's remember that uh, the U.S. Uh, has been uh, very actively, was very active organizing this new alliance in, in, uh, in Latin America that, that tried, the U.S. tried to impose an agenda in Latin America through the OES uh, with the Alianza the Lima Group. The Lima Group it resembles very. It has very uh, similar characteristics to this idea of the Alliance for Progress uh, back in the 60s and 70s. So, I think it's really important to uh, to see the uh, moving forces in Latin America as part of also the global uh, reorganizing of uh, the right wing in in Latin America. So that the Alba it it, it means hope too, and. Uh, that's also what the U.S. policy in Latin America has been trying to tackle uh, through the blockade in Venezuela, to supporting the, uh, the coup d'etat in Honduras, uh, in, other, in other countries, in Brazil, Ecuador. So Honduras was part of this counter-revolution uh, or counter-reform that the uh, international right wing uh, is trying to impose in, in, in Latin America. I, Assis, I think that's important what you said, the international right wing, because I saw something that Venezuela was uh, quoted as a, the thorn in the side of the U.S., uh, but it's not only the U.S., but it's collaborations of some other countries within Latin America, uh, Brazil and Colombia, that also work to dismantle the regional cooperation. I was wondering, Hector, if you could speak to that at all. Yeah, um, there's definitely been a counter-revolutionary push in Latin America, so I mean, we we saw a great a great push towards towards uh, towards the left in Latin America. We had we had Lula in Brazil, we had Chavez, we had in Ecuador, we had Correa. In, in Argentina, we have Néstor Kirchner. So countries with great uh, economic power within Latin America, especially Brazil, that were all of a sudden, you know leaning towards the left and also supporting a socialist revolution in Venezuela. So this 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 could not as far as empires go, they could not they could not stand this and so we're seeing we're seeing the results of a counter revolution in Latin America. So the empire has done a very good job uh, destabilizing Venezuela, uh, causing great suffering. Uh, now in Ecuador we have a, a right wing a right wing government of uh, Lenin Moreno who you know who's who sold Actually, sold Julian Assange for us for a five billion IMF loan. In Brazil, we have um, Jair Bolsonaro, who's probably a fascist president, and unfortunately, uh, he's he's leading that country. Um, so, yeah, but, but, you know, as far as like the counter revolution is is definitely something that that has slowed down. You know, as far as progress is concerned around hum- around around socialist movement, but. Um, I'm hopeful because we see that they're, you know, they're protests in, in, in Honduras, they're protesting in Haiti. Uh, Haiti is, you know, you don't hear much about Haiti, but Haiti is totally connected to the whole thing. Through another program besides ALBA, there was Petro Caribe, where it was set up during the Chavez years to provide low-cost fuel uh, oil to to members of Petro Caribe, which are a lot of, a lot of Caribbean nations are part of it, uh, Jamaica, Haiti being one of them. 
uh, at low cost, very low low cost interest. So when you attack Venezuela and you destroy Venezuela's economy, the Haitian people are going to feel it. And we saw we saw this manifested through protests, violent, deadly protests in in Haiti. So it's totally connected. The Haitian people, you know, this happened after the Haitian government voted against against Venezuela, the OAS, the Organization of American States. So this this ignited protests. So there's definitely a sentiment, a feeling, and sentiment of solidarity among the people of the of Latin America. And I want to say the Americas too, because there's a lot of uh, U.S. citizens who are, you know, who are aware of of the injustices that that our government is taking place, that has well, what they have done and what they're doing, and you know, people are engaged, people want to learn. So, and you know, and unfortunately, there's there's a barrier of information, you know, as far as like the the information gap that exists, uh, you know, that it's hard to get it's hard to get news out there, it's hard to get the truth out there. You just got to keep trying. But there's definitely, a, uh, there's definitely, ho- I'm hopeful because after 20 years of economic warfare and you know attempted daily coups, the the Venezuelan, the Venezuelan people, the Venezuelan government are still are still standing strong. Yes, they're under attack, but they're not alone. There's great solidarity, and and, and it's and it's, it's manifested. You can see it within, within the region. I think also when you speak about the yeah the resistance also here in the United States by people is what I had uh, said at the start of the show about the anger of the conditions on the border and that these issues are absolutely connected. And so if you're against what is happening at the border, you are against the U.S. empire interfering in these countries because these are a consequence or of people leaving their homes because it's not safe and that's directly connected to U.S. imperialism. Uh, Beth, I want to get you in here, too, before we end. I'm just curious if you want to weigh in, too, about what you think uh, about the resistance and the, the solidarity. What gives you hope in Honduras? You've been doing a lot of work there. Do you have any thoughts sure. you want to add? I mean, one thing that gives me hope is simply, like, the resilience of the Honduran resistance movement that even 10 years after 10 years of, you know, really brutal repression is is still resisting at the levels that it's resisting right now. And I think historically Honduras has been, um, there's been very weak solidarity uh, connections um, between organizations in the U.S. and movements in Honduras, and I think after the coup that changed. And I think there's been um, growing solidarity within the U.S. with the Honduran resistance. Um, I think we're increasingly trying to make connections, for example, here in D.C. with, you know, teachers who, uh, charter school teachers in particular, who have been organizing unions, nurses that have been on strike, uh, you know, fighting for better conditions in their hospitals, and so kind kind of trying to draw those grassroots connections um, between people who are fighting similar systems of, of privatization. And then also just uh, trying to raise more awareness for ongoing opposition to U.S. intervention. I think Honduras was um, a model sort of for a new kind of coup in Latin America and a new form of U.S. intervention in Latin America, and it served as an example of you know, like we're seeing in Venezuela, uh, sort of attempted, quote-unquote, constitutional coups. And so I think it really was kind of a test ground for that new model of conducting coups um, throughout the region. And there's been, you know, more and more solidarity and education um, being done around that. But I think we have a lot to do still. Yeah. There was something that I I just want to add here that Adrienne Pine, I think everyone here knows, uh, she's an anthropologist, I believe. And she's done a lot of work for years in Honduras. She also was one of the activists that was arrested in the Venezuelan embassy in D.C. And she was recently talking at an event in Northampton, and she said 
the survival of social movements in one country depends on the survival of social movements in another country or in the other country. And I feel that that is a really important statement to talk about the, the connections between us all and that we need to stand together against uh, these brutal force of the ruling class and the oligarchs. Corey, were you going to add something here? Well, I was just going to add a, a quote by Samir Amin, who's an Egyptian-French um, Marxian economist and political scientist and world systems analyst. In his one of his last writings before he passed, he said that it's important to recognize that what on the left, what unites us is more important than what divides us, and that it's our historical responsibility to act now and to come together and move forward. We got about a minute or two minutes for Hector, uh, Cease, and Beth. If you want to add any last words before we go out. I guess I'll say that you know, it's unfortunate that we're, we're seeing what we're seeing, but, I mean, we are seeing an empire that's, that's gotten more violent. I'm talking about our empire, the United States empire, uh, and it's empire in decline. And um, so I think, I think there's hope. I think there's hope mm-hmm. for a better future. Uh, people, people are fighting. People are standing up to injustice. I think that what I what I'll say is you know just just keep talking to people, share the truth, and uh, and just keep showing up for one another. Thank you so much for the opportunity for being here today. Thank you so much, guys. Yeah, thank you, Hector. Thank you, Hector, for being here. And um, Beth, yeah, or Beth or Assis. <coughs> I guess I just say um, thank you so much for organizing this show. You mentioned earlier sort of the waves of you know people seeking asylum in the U.S. and fleeing um, Honduras, and I think the media often sort of talks about you know, people fleeing because of violence, but it's um, almost never contextualized in terms of what U.S. intervention has looked like in, in Honduras. And so, yeah, so thank you for the show and for helping to draw these connections. Assis. Hello, yeah, uh, thank you. I just, you know, I want to thank you all for uh, organizing this and putting this together. And I'm always uh, hopeful because uh, we can see not just in, in Latin America, but globally, junior generations, getting into the street and uh, with more radical organizing uh, ways to resist and, and that's really, uh, uh, we can see it here in the U.S. and that's a really important, it's a really important uh, phenomenon globally that uh, gives us all hope uh, and, and think that an, uh, a, wor- a different world is possible. Yeah, thank you, Assis. Assis, thank you. Thank you all for joining us on Indigo Radio and we're going to go out with Ali Primera, the people's singer of Venezuela, No Basta Rezar. No, no, no basta rezar Hacen falta muchas cosas para conseguir la paz No, no, no basta rezar Hacen falta muchas cosas para conseguir la paz Y rezan de buena fe y rezan de corazón Pero también reza el piloto cuando en el avión para ir a bombardear a los niños del Vietnam, para ir a bombardear a los niños del Vietnam. No, no, no basta rezar, hacen falta muchas cosas para conseguir la paz. No, no, no basta rezar, hacen falta muchas cosas para conseguir la paz. 
se puede lograr si no hay revolución. Reza el rico, reza el amo y te maltratan al peón. Reza el rico, reza el amo y te maltratan al peón. No, no, no basta rezar, hacen falta muchas cosas para conseguir la paz. No, no, no basta rezar, hacen falta muchas cosas para conseguir la paz. Hacen falta muchas cosas para conseguir la paz. No, no, no basta rezar. Hacen falta muchas cosas para conseguir la paz. En el mundo no habrá paz mientras haya explotación del hombre por el hombre y exista desigualdad. Del hombre por el hombre y exista desigualdad. No. Hacen falta muchas cosas para conseguir la paz. No, no, no basta rezar. Hacen falta muchas cosas para conseguir la paz. Cuando el pueblo se levante y que todo haga cambiar, ustedes tiran conmigo, no bastaba con rezar. Ustedes tiran conmigo, no bastaba con rezar. Hacen falta muchas cosas para conseguir la paz. No, no, no basta rezar. No, no, no basta rezar.